listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Today, I wanted to, um, I, yesterday I was kind of going going through some things with you. If you, if you missed it, um, go back and check it out. But this right here is without a doubt the most important lesson that I've ever learned about writing. I think it's the number one thing that makes your writing great. I'm going to give you statistics and things that'll prove what I'm saying and, um, and, and, and talk about how others have used it successfully um, to persuade and even to build their businesses. Uh, and I would encourage you, if, you, if you're in business, if you're a, a salesperson, if you have your own business, this is going to be a tip that will help you um, forever. Let me just put this on just so that nobody messes with us. Sorry if I lost you. Um, this is going to be something that's going to help you forever in whatever area of business that you're in. So I was in Northern Maine. I was in Northern Maine and it was, uh, it was the middle of the winter. It was like February. And, uh, if you've ever been up to Northern Maine in Aroostook County, it is cold extremely cold um, in the in the winter. I remember when I used to go up to do youth camps in the winter, the older preacher that ran the camp for a long, long time, he uh, I was complaining one day about how cold it was. And he was like, man, he was like, you don't know what cold is. And so I was like, well, it's, it's freezing out. I was like, it's like negative 10 degrees outside. He was like, man, I've been here when it's been negative 40 degrees outside with the wind chill. He was like, do you know how cold that is? I was like, what? He said, you can take and boil water in a microwave, like in a mug. He said, you can take boiling water outside and throw it into the air. And before it comes down, it's snow or ice. (laughs) It's freezing cold. It was one of those really, really cold winters. And so I was in between teaching sessions with with the young people. And I was in my room and I had my laptop out and I was attempting like the very first book that I'd ever written. And this was not praise, laugh, repeat. Um, I ended up scrapping this book later because it just, it was a mess. And so um, I was writing and it was something ridiculous. It was like, you know, 21 steps to success or something ridiculous, you know. And uh, I, I didn't really understand what I was doing back then. And so I'm up in, the, I'm up in this room and I'm writing this this book and I was feeling really good about it. You know, I was like, uh, you know, I was, I was going through chapters, banging chapters out. I was I was like feeling really good. I was like, yeah, you know, got 11 done, 12 done. And I'm feeling like I'm feeling great about it. And uh, so that at that time, my sister-in-law, who has taught English, she's uh, worked at the university in Virginia. She's uh, not the University of Virginia, but universities in Virginia. Um, and she's a great, great linguist, if you will. She's She was a copy editor uh, for Oral Roberts and uh, other people. She helped me immensely. So I was all excited to send this manuscript to her. You know, I'd done all these chapters uh, and all this. And I was like, I oh, mean, I'm ready to, to get some feedback. And I was feeling really good. You know, I was like, man, this is awesome. And so I'm sitting up there. I'm, I'm More chapters are coming out. I was actually feeling really good about myself because I think I'd written close to 20 chapters on this book. 
and uh, you know I'm up in the wilderness of Maine writing, and it's like coming, it's coming together so well. So I, I put it all together and saved it as like a PDF, and I uh, I emailed it to my sister-in-law, and uh, you know I'm, I'm waiting for her glowing uh, response of how great my writing was and and all this. But of course I'm open to some con- constructive criticism as well, and so I get this email back. Um, and, and I can tell already that she's a little bit, um, you know, pensive and I'm, I'm like, well, what, what's the story? And she's like, well, you know, it's good. And I was like, oh, here we go. When anybody starts with like, you know, it's good. You know, it's like, it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, I heard one guy say, when somebody starts with, with all due respect, somebody's about to get disrespected. Um, but <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, it's good. But then she gave me this tip. She was like, your writing is basically all, you know, it's, it's, uh, the Bible says this, so you should do this. And the Bible says this, so you should do this. And she said, it's all true and it's all good. She's like, but there's not really a re a reason, uh, as it were for the reader to care about it. Now I know people that are like, uh, might jump on and be like, well, if the Bible says it, that's the only reason you need to care about something. And yes, I get what you're saying. We should obey the Bible because it's true. No question. But she was showing me something which was extremely powerful. And she said, um, you know, there's no stories in, in your in your book. You've got no, no stories whatsoever. It's all just principles, scriptures, data, you know. And, and it was exactly right. There was nothing. There was no narrative. There was no stories. There was nothing linking the principles together. There was nothing to even make you care about reading further. Because here's the thing. When you're, re- when you're writing a book, you have to, if you're going to write something, obviously you want people to read it <laughs> or else you wouldn't write it. But if you want people to read it, then one of the things that's got to be true about your book is that it has to be readable. <laughs> and I don't mean uh, with proof proofreading and proper grammar. I, of course, that's important. But when I say readable, uh, I mean that it needs to be something that people want to read something that people want to read. So um, one of the things that that she was pointing out to me was the power of storytelling. And and a great point she brought out too, uh, she said, look at the teaching of Jesus. And it was such such a phenomenal point. Look at the teaching of Jesus, the way that Jesus, I mean, he was always teaching heavenly principles. He was always teaching the heart of God, but notice how he did it. Jesus was always using principles parables. He was always using parables. I mean, that's how he taught throughout his entire ministry. It's what he, it's what he used. And what he would do is he would take those kingdom principles and he would pack them inside of parables or stories and then deliver them to the people and notice what would happen. It would cause the principle to be understandable and digestible by the hearer. And in your case, the reader. So he would use the power of story to teach the principle and to actually put it into their heart and into their spirit. And then it carries with them, you know, for the rest of their life. Um, I asked this question yesterday and I'll ask it again today. And if it's true of you, put a hand in the comments. But how many of you have ever listened to, um, you know, a preacher preach a message and, you know, years later, you can't remember what scripture he used. You can't remember the title of his message. You may not even be able to remember what the message was about, but he told a story during his message 
that you have never forgotten and will never forget. You've actually told it to other people. You know, years later, you're still telling the story that you heard a preacher tell all those years. That's the same. Hey, Rohan. And it's the same for me. I'm the same. Kelly, what's up? I've had that happen. I mean, I'm still remembering stories that preachers told 20 years ago, you know, 25 years ago. And uh, I remember those stories. My dad uh, has told so many stories uh, over his ministry, in his messages, things that have happened, things that he's heard other preachers uh, have happened to them. And they're powerful because they link you emotionally to the principle that is being taught and it sticks in your mind. See, that's the power of a story is it sticks in your mind. It's a vehicle that allows the principle to stay in your mind. And uh, it's almost like a Trojan horse. If you understand what the, the principle of that story, they gave it as a gift, but what they were really doing was bringing troops behind the guarded walls. And that, that's, what it, that's exactly what the power of a story does, is it packs those principles into that story, which is receivable, digestible, and it brings those principles into the heart of a person. And uh, I'm gonna show you some of that today, but when I heard that, I realized what needed to change for the stories, uh, for, for the books that I was writing to be digestible, to be readable. You know, one of the things you have to understand, and we'll, we'll get into more of the technical stuff tomorrow and Friday, but one of the things we have to understand is that um, we have a short amount of time for somebody to uh, be hooked into what we're writing and what we've, what we've done. So think about somebody that may never, may not even know who you are. You've got somebody that's, um, you know, never met you, doesn't, maybe doesn't know you or your story or whatever. Maybe they see your book and because of the cover, that's your first hook. Maybe because of the cover or the title, they pick the book up. And when they pick the book up, they may look at it, look at the title, look at the cover. They may flip it over and read the, the blurb on the back or the description of your book on the back. If that interests them, they may open it up and look at the content section, flip through the first chapter. They might start reading the first chapter. Um, you have a limited amount of time to connect with the person who's reading your book. I can tell you I've started a ton of books and then just put them down never to come back again because they weren't engaging books. They just weren't engaging. Um, so in that case, it's like you've wasted your time. You might as well put your very best foot forward, do everything you can to bring a hook that will be set in the jaw of your reader to guide them through the rest of your book. And, um, and that's the key. So the power of storytelling. So I want you to put this in the comments today. There is power in storytelling. I want you to understand that. There is power in storytelling. This is something that literally changed everything. The, the last book that I've released, Further Faster, in that last book, I start it. I start the book by telling a story that really defines what impartation is. And that was the subject of the book, was supernatural impartation. So I'm starting the book, if you, if you have it, if you've read it, you know that I start the book telling the story of my two daughters in the swimming race when we first moved to Florida. And um, how Brooklyn couldn't win the race against her older sister who was a better swimmer 
And then I, uh, I helped my daughter, Brooklyn, who's younger, on the final race, and I threw her forward beyond her sister, use that analogy to show you how impartation works. Well, it's a story that anybody can really, especially any parent uh, of children can can uh, identify with, you know, your kids being extremely competitive, never wanting the other one to win, you know, all of that. It, it allows you to engage with a story, but allows you to understand the principle in practicality of what a, um, of what impartation is. Um, I saw just a moment ago, who was that? Was that Toya? Who said that? Yeah, Taya. Taya was saying <clears throat> that was the thing that engaged her when I wrote Blood on the Door. Because in that book, it's the only time I've ever done it, but I felt to write a short story, a fictional short story, of what the Passover night, the very first Passover, would have been like in Egypt. And I tell the story of a father and his son uh, being harassed by Egyptian slave masters um, and then the son being lost in the city and the father having to search for the son before the death angel comes and they'd be safely in their homes where the blood was on the door uh, and I give you heroes villains somebody to root for somebody to hate and it drives home the power of the covenant that God's people had through the blood and so it's the story that literally connects you uh, to the reader. And then it allows you to insert that principle into their mind or their spirit, their soul, whatever. And many people don't properly spend time uh, using stories or, or, or putting them into their into their books. Might be just a short little quip or something, but you need to develop it because it's one of the greatest tools that we have as writers and communicators. You might, even, you might not even be doing writing, but this is just as important if you're doing presentations at your job, your business, whatever, you might be giving a presentation to a team, pitching something, you might be a, a salesperson. Stories are the greatest tool. I mean, the greatest tool. You know, it's interesting, like if you were a salesperson, I'm thinking of my friend who sells security systems. You know, when you go into a home to sell a security system, the stats are great, the, the facts, all the features, feature sets, great thing to tell the, the customer. But if you can share practical stories of how these products have helped um, customers in the past when they've had problems, break-ins, emergencies, whatever, and it allows the, it allows the potential customer to see, man, that, that I, I've, you know, I've had issues like that and I could, I could definitely use something that would be that easy. It sells because the story connects immediately with the person. It's powerful no matter what you're doing. Sales, presentations, writing, public speaking, stories are king. They are king. It's why Jesus used them uh, as a teacher. But I wanted, to, I wanted to give you some stats because, and I'll give you some books to read as well, because you have to develop this, man. This is like, it's, it's, it's the premier thing for anybody that wants to be great at this. But I was, uh, I was reading a book, and I'll give you both of these books right now and again at the end. There are two books written by a guy named Carmine Gallo, C-A-R-M-I-N-E, Carmine Gallo, G-A-L-L-O. And uh, the first book that he wrote is called uh, How to Talk Like Ted. And if you're familiar with it, there's um, there was a um, there are conferences, the the TED Talks. I'm sure you may have watched some on on YouTube, or maybe you've got the app. You may have watched TED Talks before. Um, and so he did a study 
of what he considered to be the most successful TED Talks in the history of the conferences and judged them by persuasiveness and even the length of the standing ovation at the end, all, all of that stuff. And so in his book, How to Talk Like Ted, he went through, I believe, nine principles that he collected from seeing all those that caused them to be the most successful TED Talks of all time. But then, as he was taking that book around, I thought this was so interesting. Um, as he was taking his book around and teaching the principle to businesses, because they were trying to learn how to use those techniques to sell products, as he was going around, he said there would always be a question and answer session uh, at the end of his presentation at the businesses. And he said, of all the nine principles that I taught from How to Talk Like Ted, he said, there was one that by far, by far, got more questions than any other of the nine tips and the, and the principles. And it was on the principle of storytelling. And he said that was the number one by far most asked uh, question about one of the principles he was teaching. And he said he realized how much storytelling still had uh, trumped everything else he was teaching. And so he went on and wrote a sequel to the book, How to Talk Like Ted. And the sequel is called uh, The Storyteller's Secret. The Storyteller's Secret. And... Um, I'm telling you, I highly recommend both of those books to anybody who is speaking, selling, giving presentations, or writing, because they will change the way you think about how you communicate with the people that are listening to you. But in that last book, The Storyteller's Secret by Carmine Gallo, if you're looking for that, I'll tell you at the end again. But he begins to uh, break down that one principle in a full book form. And it is extremely powerful. There's tons of principles. I want to give you a few of those things today to help you understand the power um, of, the, of the story as you're writing, as you're teaching. Um, that's, for me, I love it. I, I'll tell you this. When I was young, traveling on the road with my father and my mother, we would always be in revival services, you know, every single night. But as we were, when the service would come to an end, you know what preachers do at the end of every service, we go eat somewhere. And so um, one of my favorite, favorite times of the revivals is when the services would come to an end, my father and my mother and, and, and me and my sister, we would go with the pastor and his family either back to their house to eat or to a restaurant to eat. And I would sit there at the table and listen as my dad and the pastor and their families would go back and forth and tell stories and trade stories of what ministry was like and what they've experienced in ministry and the funny things that have happened and all that. And I was, I can remember still to this day, like I was so engaged with the stories. I would sit there next to my dad in the restaurants and I would, I would listen to uh, the stories being told and the things the pastor would tell. My grandfather would do the same. He had story after story after story. I'd listen to those stories, my fathers, the pastors, all the men of God that we, we would uh, meet with, hear the funny stories they've had happen to them in ministry and all that stuff. 
And that's what drove me. And I would never forget the stories. I'd tell them to other people. I'm like, you got, you got to hear this funny story that this pastor told us of something that happened in one of the services at his church. And it just, it made me realize now later, I didn't think of this back then, but it made me realize later how, I mean, like that all this time later, and I still remember the stories from when I was a kid and things that people told and how powerful it was, it stuck with me. It's because stories stick with you. And I can remember even as a kid, you know, I'd think, I would think certain stories that my dad had were super funny and I'd sit there and if he didn't tell it, I'd look at my dad and say, tell him that, tell him that story about when you did this or tell, tell him about when you were in Bible school and this happened. And I would sit, I'd start suggesting stories because I wanted to hear them again and again. And, um, Yep, that's the book, Amanda. Carmine Gallo, How to Talk Like Ted. That's the first one. The second one by Carmine Gallo, The Storyteller's Secret. There it is, The Storyteller's Secret. And so um, I can remember, like I'd, I'd even suggest, tell them that story about when you are in Bible school and this happened or that. And uh, it, it made me realize now that stories stick with you. I can still remember stories my grandfather told. I tell, listen, listen. When I go preach in different places, I'll, I'll be, they'll ask me about my family and stuff, and I'll tell them stories about my grandfather, who was you know, a, a phenomenal man of God, but he was bold and he was brag. I, lo- I loved his stories. But people still to this day appreciate those funny stories from my grandfather's ministry. But here's the thing, I remember them. I can remember them. You know, and uh, the reason being is stories stick with you. And one of the things that was interesting to me that they did a study on, they found that they were, uh, they would, they did a study on this. They, they studied the blood flow of the brain. They would use MRI technology to study the blood flow of the brain when, um, people were watching a speaker, people were watching a movie, people were watching a presentation, and they were doing a study on this to see. And one of the things that was amazing was that as the viewer was watching the speaker, the movie, the the presenter, that the areas of their brain that would fire would be the same as the emotion of the person telling the story or giving a presentation. So if the person, for example, was giving a, telling a story about something that angered them, that really made them mad, what they found was that the listener would then mirror the feelings of the storyteller. Think about this. And, and that's why uh, great speakers through the ages, whether they were good or bad, had such an ability to rally people together. You know, you think about whether they were good or bad, could be on the good side, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was an amazing public speaker, amazing ability to rally the troops, if you will, or whether it's Adolf Hitler on the other side, a completely evil man. But notice he was a phenomenal public speaker with the ability to rally people together. It starts to help you to understand why this is true because somebody who is a good speaker, presenter, storyteller, writer, when somebody is listening to you, reading what you've written, what they found is that you actually mirror the um, the emotion of the person who's telling it. So if there's somebody that's given you a, a funny story, uh, it's very lighthearted, they found that the blood flow triggered that in the brain and that that would set the people in the audience in that state of mind. 
If it was somebody telling a tragic story, something sad that had happened to their family, they would mirror it in the audience. You know, uh, we, we know that on a general level. You know, you watch a sad p movie, people cry. You know, watch a funny movie, people laugh. You know, you watch a thriller, people get tense. Because you, you, you're creating an atmosphere that people get in, in, you know, they get drawn into and then it affects them. The same is true with storytelling. So it actually causes the person to mirror what you're saying, what you're feeling, which is why, by the way, um, I, found, I found this extremely interesting. One of the guys that gave a TED Talk, uh, his name was Stevenson. He was a civil rights attorney and activist, but he only had 15, 20 minutes. But instead of spending his entire presentation giving the stats and the figures and, you know, all the facts about what he was trying to persuade you to do, he spent the first one third of his presentation telling personal stories. Well, what did it do? It gave the listener the ability to understand where he's coming from, why he spent his entire life on this cause and what it means to him personally and how it changed his life personally. And one of the things is that he said, he said he's discovered because he does these presentations all over the nation. He said, I've discovered that uh, telling uh, personal stories or having a narrative is the most powerful way to break down resistance to somebody that's resisting you somebody that's trying to disagree, or maybe you're already talking to somebody who has a predisposition to disagree with your stance. Like you're trying to persuade somebody from the other side to come and agree with you on your side. Well, most of the time, and, and this is what they're saying they've learned, is that the way to do that is not through data, is not through statistics, it's not through facts and figures, but a lot of the time, the way to do it is through narrative to get people to understand the story and people get drawn in by the story and then they understand the principle. One, one of the things you'll know is stats, facts, figures can get cold. They can be very cold. There's no heart to them. But um, stories are personal. They have, in fact, there was a great, um, a great quote here that I want to give you if I can find it. Um, they, this is, and I want you to write this in the comments. Stories are just data with a soul. I want you to write that. That, that. that to me was the best quote that I could get on this. Stories are data with a soul. And that that's, that's a powerful thought because you're still transferring the, the principles that you want to transfer. You're still relating um, your thought process, but you're doing it in a form of storytelling that's digestible by the listener. So stories are data with a soul. Stories are data with a soul. It actually puts a heart to the things that you're saying that shows you're not just all about the, fa the facts and the figures. And that's why people, you know, that's why people get hammered even in politics today. You know, you, you hear all the stuff that's going on racially right now. Anytime somebody disagrees with what's going on racially, and they start trying to bring up stats and figures and, and statistics and all this stuff. They get hammered and people say, well, you're just heartless. You don't care. They may be right. They may be exactly right with their statistics and their facts and figures. But it comes across as cold because it feels um, it, it feels just 
like you have no compassion for those that are suffering. And you say, well, I don't, I, like, like you're trying to discount their suffering by giving stats and, and st- stats and facts and figures that disagree with what they're saying. Rather than, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, <laughs> but one of the things that we're realizing in uh, 2020 is that narrative has now become more uh, believable than facts have. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's it's true in politics, it's true in, in economics, it's true in, every, in everything. I'll give you an example. They polled the millennial generation and they said, in your opinion, what percentage of the population do you think identifies as LGBTQ? They polled the millennials and the Gen Y. In your opinion, which what percentage of our population identifies as LGBTQ? Be part of that group. The answer from the millennials and Gen Y was um, probably a little bit over 30%. So they thought that one in three people in America was part of the LGBTQ community. Well, it's not even close to that. It's not even not even close to that. It's in the single digits, single digits um, when you combine everybody together. But the question is, why did they think that? Why did the millennial generation, Gen Y, when asked that question, why did they give an answer that was so large? I'll tell you exactly why they thought that and why they continue to think that is because the LGBTQ community has worked hard to insert themselves in all narrative. Have you noticed that? In every narrative that there is, you they fight hard, they lobby hard to be a part of everything, advertising campaigns, television shows, movies, whatever it might be, to the point where you can't even watch any show. I mean, like there's like no shows that are being produced where there's not a gay character on the show or a homosexual relationship, whatever it might be. Um, same with movies. There, there's always going to be, especially now, somebody that represents that community in film, television, commercials. We're starting to see transgenderism that's being pushed in mainstream um, ad campaigns. Um, and so one of the things that you realize is what we believe is actually being pushed by a narrative and not by facts, not by statistics, not by truth, but by narrative, by storytelling, by putting it in front of the face of people over and over and over. It gives us, because when you watch, isn't it true though? I mean, put a hand in the comments if you've noticed this. If you watch a show on Netflix, television, whatever, Everybody has a gay friend. There's always someone in the group that represents the homosexual community. Have you noticed that? So when when our kids, when our grandkids, when they watch shows and they continually see this over and over and over, they just assume and say, well, large portion of the population is LGBTQ. They're everywhere on the show, everywhere in films, everywhere that we see, they're in ad campaigns, they're everywhere. And so they've been led to believe it's a majority of the population. You know, it's, you know, 30 some percent of America is what they guessed. It's not that. 
But why, why are they changed? Because of the narrative, because of what's being told, what's being shown, well, the stories that are being told. Um, things that are, all of the things that are coming out, um, whether they be specials or documentaries or whatever it might be, telling the story. So what happens? It puts a narrative in our minds that gets us to believe something, even if the facts don't support it, we believe it. And so um, you can see the power of narrative at that point. You definitely see the power of narrative. Um, now think about this. This is a quote from the book. You need data, you need facts and analysis to challenge people, but you also need narrative to get people comfortable enough to care about the community that you're advocating for. Your audience needs to be willing to go with you on a journey. So what they're saying is, yes, you need it needs to be true. You need to have some stats. You need to have some facts and, and, and you need to have some uh, figures, but for anybody to care about those things, there has to be a narrative that people can ingest and go along with, without question. And so, um, let me let me give you three things. These will help you. Um, three things that they've discovered in the art of persuasion. Um, the first is ethos, which is credibility. Somebody will believe you because of this, the, who you are in society. So, for example. Who are you more likely to believe about a diagnosis about your body, a, a physician or a plumber, right? You, you get, you get, you could get a report from either one. Your plumber may look at you and say, man, you don't look good. Looks to me like you have this. Well, are you going to stake your whole life on, on the medical advice of a plumber? Or are you going to go see a physician and see what a trained doctor has to say about whatever your condition is. And so you understand the difference. Ethos is uh, people's ability to believe you based on your credibility, you know, based on, based on who you are, what you've done. You know, there's a reason that we want to ask um, investors or people that have been successful in investing how to invest our money. We don't, we don't ask poor people uh, how to invest. Why? Because they don't know. It's all about credibility. It's like I've said um, uh, in preaching before. There are no poor people, uh, or I should say homeless people, there are no homeless people buying other homeless people homes. There are no homeless people asking other homeless people how to get a home. Why? Because they don't know. If they knew, they'd have one. And so that's the key, that you, you begin to understand that it's based on credibility. That's one third. The, the second one is logos that is the your means of persuasion through logic data and statistics it's it's what you say it's your ability to persuade somebody by the art of speaking statistics facts it, it, it doesn't even you might not be even be somebody who's accomplished it yet but you have the ability to persuade others in that direction because of your persuasiveness in speech that's logos l-o-g-o-s that's your ability to speak well. Now, listen, all three of these are needed for you to be truly persuasive, but they're not all as important as the others. Let me give you another one. The final one is pathos. That is the act of appealing to the emotions. Pathos, where we, where we get the word pathological. Pathos, it's the ability to appeal to the emotions. That's where you come in with storytelling. 
That's what affects the person in their soul. You know, you tell a story. It's a heart-wrenching story. It's an interesting story. It's a thrilling story. It moves their emotions when you tell the story. See the, see the difference? So you've got ethos, which is your credibility. You've got logos, which is your ability to appeal to their mind through stats and figures and, and facts. But then you've got pathos, which is your ability to appeal to them through the emotional level, which is how most people are moved. Sadly, I mean, obviously, as Christians, we're supposed to be moved by what the spirit of God says, but no question about it. Many people are moved by their emotions. And obviously, most people that don't have Christ are moved by their emotions, as we're seeing in every arena of life right now. So when we when they broke this down with effectiveness, I thought this was interesting. When they broke this down with effectiveness, it was like um, 10% uh, ethos, which would be your credibility. That, that mattered 10% of the equation. Then when they got into your ability to speak or, uh, you know, your, your statistics, your facts, whatever, that made up uh, 25% importance in the equation. And then when they got into pathos or the ability to appeal the emotions, 65% of the equation should be made up of that section of pathos, which is the storytelling section. The thing that actually moves people. You know, have you ever heard of this? And I, I know you have, but I mean, I want you to think about why it's important. That they say that the best advertising is what? Word of mouth. What is the best form of that? Put your hand up in the comments if you've heard that before. Best form of advertising is word of mouth. Let me see who's heard that. You've heard it. The best form of advertising is word of mouth. Why? Because who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe a company that wants you to buy something that they're selling and will do anything they can to sell it to you? Or are you going to believe someone that has no interest in you buying or not buying that already has the product and them giving you their honest opinion of the product? And see, that's why word of mouth is so powerful because when you realize you're hearing it from somebody that's not interested in whether or not you're going to give that company money or buy that product, they're just interested in you hearing about their experience with that product. That's why, especially in 2020, I could guarantee almost all of you probably do this. If you're going to buy a new product, what do you normally do? You go on Amazon or Google or whatever, and you look the product up, and then what's the first thing you do? You read the reviews. You read the reviews. Do you know that they've pro they've proven? Love you, Jerry. You know that they've actually proven that they could have two of the exact same products side by side that do the exact same thing same quality, same everything. But then if you look at the reviews, people will buy one of them based upon, they don't have different features. They don't, have, they don't come with more. They're not cheaper, same price, same features, same everything. But people will buy the one that has a better rating. No question. 
same price, same features, same everything. But people will always, almost always buy the one that has a better rating. But then here's what really interested me. And when I read this, I thought, you know what? I do the exact same thing. Um, have you ever wanted to go somewhere to eat and you've looked it up on Yelp to see like, well, what is this restaurant rated? Do you know what's interesting? I could look for, let's say a Mexican restaurant. I may find two Mexican restaurants that are both rated four out of five stars, right? So they both serve Mexican food. They're both within my vicinity. They're both rated four stars out of five. However, one of them has 670 reviews and the other one has 80 reviews. Do you know, like every single time, I choose the one that has 670 reviews. And I've never stopped to think why I choose that one. But when you go back to think about why you choose it is because our brains subconsciously think, well, if more people have reviewed it, that must be mean more people are going there, which means it must be better food because why aren't they going to the other place and reviewing that one instead? It's also close by. So why does that one have 700 reviews and this one has 80? And they're rated the same, sell the same type of food. You know, in some cases, they may even have the same owner. Like where I lived in Virginia Beach, there were two Mexican restaurants um, that were literally like two not even two miles, like maybe one mile apart. Maybe one mile apart. One was called El Tapatio. The other one was called Senor Fox. They were same owner, less probably less than a mile apart. So in some of these cases, the restaurants may be even owned by the same owner. So they've got the same menu. They're making the same food, same recipes. But we choose. What do we do? We choose the one that has more reviews. Why is that? We're trusting the words and the stories of other people. You start reading through. You read the stories. We went on a date, me and my husband. We had a great time. They were so kind. It was my birthday. They gave me a free whatever. You go start looking through. We had a problem with our order. They were so quick to make it right. They brought me out a hot meal within five minutes of me complaining about having the wrong order. You start reading people's stories about those places and it immediately, uh, it, it almost like ties your heart. It, 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 it's hard to explain other than it, it causes your emotions. Say, man, this is a place that really takes care of you. Well, that doesn't represent every experience someone had at the restaurant, but it's what you're seeing. It's the word of mouth. I remember when I first got something that I really liked, I was like positive that there's no way, there's no way in the world instant coffee can ever be good. There's just no way. And my wife and I were walking through the mall and we passed a Williams Sonoma store and it smelled like coffee inside. <clears throat> um, and I went in and the lady was all excited and she was like, uh, do you like, do you like espresso? And I was like, yeah, I drink espresso and lattes and everything, cappuccino. And she was like, okay, you've got to try this. And I'm like, all right. So she's, she's trying to sell me on some product. And so she's telling me how awesome it is, how convenient it is. She's telling me all this stuff. And I go in and this is like when the Nespresso company had like first come out. I don't know if you guys have heard of Nespresso. 
but they make the instant espresso machines with the pods, kind of like Keurig, but different. So she's like, you got to try this. I'm going to make you like a mini latte. I'll make you a shot of espresso. I'm like, there's no way that espresso can be good as instant espresso. And uh, I was like, but I'll try it. So she pops a pot in, pulls me a shot of espresso in the store. I drink it. I'm like, man, it's it's good. It's like actually, it's it doesn't taste burnt. It's tasty espresso. It was actually good. She's like, now let me make you a latte. She makes me a latte. I was blown away. So I, I drank the latte. I immediately, I remember this now. I was in there by myself. I went and found my wife, wh- whatever store she was in. I was like, Carolyn, you have got to try this. You have to come back to this store and you've got to try uh, this this coffee, this thing called Nespresso. You have to try it. It's like, uh, it's unbelievable. And I told her the whole thing I just told you. I didn't think, there's no way instant coffee can be good. Instant espresso can be good. She was skeptical. We go back. I get. I had her make, make, make one for my wife. We ended up buying one of those machines. We liked it so much. I promise you this. I'm at this point in my life wishing, um, yes, Caitlin, this is what Carolyn posts on her story all the time because now we have two of those machines. And let me tell you why and how it happened. So literally, <laughs> Caitlin's like, you just sold me. I just told a story and sold Caitlin on the machine. And this is why I say, at that point, at that point, I wish Nespresso would have somehow known how much work I was doing for them. Because anybody I met with that liked coffee, I was like, look, listen, if you like coffee, if you like Nespresso or espresso and cappuccinos and lattes, you've got to check out one of these Nespresso machines. They're affordable, first of all, but the coffee they put out is phenomenal. And it's like so quick, you drop a pot in, they have different roasts from all over the world, different flavors from all over the world. And one of the coolest things is that I thought instant espresso could never be good, but I found out there's a reason that they don't sell it in a store. You have to order it because when you order it on their app, they pack it for you within one to two days and it comes to you almost instantly and it's all freshly packed into the pods. So it's not actually instant espresso that's been sitting on the shelf for six months, it's packed in the warehouse and then mailed to you and you're getting pretty much uh, fresh espresso. So everybody I'm meeting up with, I'm telling them about these Nespresso machines. I'm like, man, let me tell you, man, these things are amazing and they're, 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 not, they're not super expensive and they all, no matter which one you buy, they all make the same strength of espresso. Uh, all this different stuff, there's all these different uh, flavors and they do special pods, limited edition pods and all this stuff. And it's amazing and it tastes great and all that. And so I'm telling everybody, I was probably responsible for 40 to 50 people buying Nespresso machines. And now on this broadcast, even more. <laughs> and it's, what is it? I'm telling them the story. You know, I'm not sitting down like, now, do you understand that the strength of espresso is measured in bars? And that's the strength of the steam that comes through the espresso machine. It has has nothing like that. I wish I was getting commissioned because I loved it so much. But what was selling other people? It wasn't the commercials that Nespresso was doing with George Clooney. It was old Ted telling everybody how good my Nespresso machine was. What happened? They're now trusting my story Because remember this, I don't have any interest in whether or not they buy it. I don't get any money. I don't get any commission. I'm just telling you my story of how great it's been for me. Well, we like it so much, 
Literally, I'm sitting here in Moorefield, West Virginia, where there's not a Starbucks for miles. I don't, I honestly, I couldn't tell you the closest Starbucks to Moorefield, West Virginia. However, guess what I'm sitting here drinking today in the middle of nowhere? I'm drinking a Nespresso latte. And I'll tell you why I am and why I can. Because I found that they make a really small and compact machine that we can throw in a suitcase. And I think it's, I don't know if they've changed the name of it. It was called the Ascenza. It was the Nespresso Ascenza. It was like 150 bucks or maybe $199, something like that. And, you know, it's a tiny little espresso machine that you, with, you, know, you can just throw into your suitcase when you travel. My wife brings a little milk frother that you put on a base and it froths your milk. We just pour it in. Uh, she's got syrup in the suitcase. And we sit there and we can make lattes in the hotel room right here where we are. We loved it so much, we didn't just buy one for the house. We bought another one to take on the road with us so that literally wherever we are, she just goes to Walmart and buys, you know, a 40 pack of, of disposable cups. We're sit, we're our own Starbucks in the hotel room. And it's excellent Nespresso or espresso, I should say, excellent lattes. Doesn't taste burnt like some other places that I won't mention by name, but you know, delicious. But I'm sitting here telling you a story. I'm sitting here telling you a story and you're starting to think now about after the broadcast is over, going to check out Nespresso's website and see, some of you may have already opened up another tab on your browser and are checking out Nespresso's website. Uh, but lift your hand if you've thought about after the broadcast, maybe checking Nespresso out and seeing what, what it costs to get one for your house. You know what I mean? Put your hand up if that's you. It's just the power of story. I've got no interest in whether or not you buy one because I don't get commission. It doesn't mean anything to me, but what you're hearing is you're hearing from me a personal story of, of something that I loved that literally changed the way we travel on the road. We love coffee. We love having a latte we, in the morning, whatever. And so it changed the way we did that because we found something that we love. And to tell that story to other people, what's it going to make them do? It's going to make them want to take the same steps and actions that you took to get to the place you're at. And there might be people out of this broadcast or podcast that go buy Nespresso machines that never had them before simply because I'm telling you this story. Well, the thing is this, is that that's the same thing with your writing. It's the same thing with your speaking. It's the same thing with your uh, presentations that you give or sales that you may do. It's the stories that actually connect you to the hearts of people and to the minds of people, and it, and it, and then it, and then it literally causes them to take action. Well, that's what I want. You know, when I write a book, I want I feel the principles extremely important, or I wouldn't write a book on it, right? That's like what, yesterday when I was telling you about uh, praise, laugh, repeat, and how I was so sick of seeing people die because of depression, anxiety, fear, suicide. I was so tired of seeing that that the Lord, I said, Lord, you've got to give me an avenue to share with these people to get them free. Well, as I'm right, of course I think that principle is important. I need people to know it, but I also want to include the stories so that they can see it's possible to be free. It's possible to be set free and never have to take antidepressants. It's possible 
for God to, to touch me in that way. And see, when I show them through stories and practical application, people will then begin to take the steps and the action that you're suggesting to obtain the principle that you're trying to teach. It's amazing. I had the same exact thing happen to me um, as a traveling preacher and a traveling musician as I'm doing uh, here for my father during these tent meetings. Uh, one of the biggest problems that I've always had was musicians get tired of lugging their gear around everywhere. And I used to travel with a 60 pound keyboard that had a 40 pound case. Imagine trying to lug a hundred pounds through an airport on the, you know, putting it on the truck, taking it off, taking it into convention centers, taking it into hotels, unpacking it, lifting it up, setting it up. You know, you get tired of that. So I found this keyboard that um, Yamaha was making called the Yamaha MX-49. So I was, um, I had just finished a worship conference with it. I was blown away by how easy it was to carry around. I was blown away by how I could get it onto an airplane with no issue. I could put it on my back, literally take it around. And uh, I'm sitting there, so I did a YouTube video on it. I'm not even sure uh, at this point how many videos, like tens of thousands of people watched the video. And then I'm getting all these comments. I'm literally getting all these comments in the comments section of the video on YouTube of people being like, bro, I found your video, really appreciated you putting it out. I was on the fence. I didn't know what to get. I'm a traveling musician. I play at a church. I all these different things. And and then I'm getting all these video, all these comments on the video. Because of your video, I'm buying one immediately. Just bought mine. Thanks, bro. Just got mine. I mean, like literally, all these people underneath are now telling me <laughs> that they they just bought the same keyboard because of my review and because of the video. And literally, I don't work for Yamaha. I wish I was getting commission from them because of it, but here's what's taken place, is because of my story, because of my story about the keyboard, it's causing people to go buy it. People that don't even know me, people that don't even know who I am, are now going online or going down to Guitar Center or wherever they, they buy mu musical stuff, Sam Ash, and buying their own. Why? Because of a story. And the story is what sells it. And so it, it blew my mind that literally storytelling in any form causes people to take action in any form. Um, let me just say this as well. Um, there's three types of stories. I'll, I'll get ready to, to finish shortly, but there's three types of stories that you can include uh, in your writing, in your presentation, sales, whatever you're doing. Number one, uh, personal stories. Number two, um, stories about others. Number three would be like stories about brand success. That would be if you're trying to push a product or selling something or whatever, doing a presentation to your company, whatever. But uh, stories about brand success. But it's so important, like when you're sharing these, you know, I, I had somebody say to me, um, recently they were like, you know, I have doubts, you know, even about this, they've been, they were struggling with their, with their Christianity, serving the Lord. I have doubts. I have doubts about if this is going to work for me. I've seen it work for others. I just don't know. You know, I, I don't know. I, I can't, my, 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 
The thing that's holding me back is wondering if, if it'll happen the same way for me that it's happened for others. I just can't bring myself to believe. Well, there's people that struggle with belief. There's people that struggle with knowing it's gonna take place for them as well. But here's the key. The key is this. If you'll continue to show them, you know, that's what happened with Jesus in the New Testament. Do you know the Bible says that Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, he had already heard the stories about Jesus. He already knew who Jesus was. No one had to tell him who Jesus was because as Jesus is leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus had already heard stories about Jesus. And now he the stories gave him the faith to take action. Think about that. The stories gave Bartimaeus faith to take action. And so what did he do? He started to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It gave him faith to ask for healing because he heard the stories about Jesus healing others. See, that's what stories do. <clears throat> the more you hear Jesus, the Bible says about Jesus' ministry, many believed on his name when they saw the miracles which he did, John chapter two. Well, what is that? People are watching the stories of others being changed by Jesus, and so the stories increase the faith of the people. They believed on his name. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed in his ministry when they saw the miracles. They were watching him change the stories of others. Now it gave them a story. Listen, I was down here in Galilee. Jesus came through. There was a guy there that was completely blind. Jesus laid hands on him and the blind, the guy, I know the guy was blind since he was born. Now he's healed. And, and what does the Bible say? His fame spread abroad and all those different places. They knew who he was. His reputation preceded him. Why? Because of the stories that were being told. So what, let me ask you a question. What do you think it was that was causing people to come out and find Jesus and follow him into the wilderness by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. He didn't interact with thousands of people at the beginning of his ministry. His crowds grew, the Bible says. So what was it? It was the stories about him that were spreading through the region. People heard it. Like, what? There's a, there's a guy that's, te that's teaching and healing people from their sicknesses and diseases? Where is he meeting? Where is he at now? Where is he preaching right now? Let's go find him. I've got an issue. My husband's got an issue. My children have an issue. And the stories that were told about Jesus caused people to go and find him wherever he was and petition him for their own miracles. It was the stories about him that built their faith or they would not have come. They would not have come. They heard the stories, they heard the word. You know, part of, of preaching the word is storytelling. You know, that's what Jesus did. But you understand the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so Jesus told stories. Jesus was the one that modeled that for his people. And he understood the human better than anybody else. He's the creator. Jesus is the word made flesh. He understood the people that he created. He understood the mind. He understood the soul. He understood the spirit and the flesh. And he knew how to reach the hearts of men and women by the power of storytelling. And they followed him by the thousands to hear what he had to say. You know, people love stories. They love stories. 
Absolutely they do. That's why they get shared so much. <clears throat> That's why you have so much uh, at, at workplaces, you know, people sharing stories, telling stories, getting around the water cooler, the cubicle, whatever it is, telling things that happened. You know, did you hear what happened to what's his name? Oh, bro, you got to hear this. And they tell the story. And stories have been the way that human human beings have, have uh, transferred information since the beginning of time. Before there was writing, before there was internet and video and any of that, people would get around the fire and tell stories about their day, tell what happened, tell stories about their ancestors. It's been the way we were created since the beginning of time and our minds latch onto it like nothing else. I promise you that. They, they latch onto it like nothing else. Let me give you a final tip before we pray today, and that is this. As you're telling stories, it's okay to use things that are, um, you know, euphemisms or, you know, it's, it's all right to, it's all right to use stuff that's been used in a way, but don't become cliche in what you say, not even in the phrases that you say, because what ends up happening to us is when you use common phrases, you know, it's like, even when you use, um, a tool for writing, like, you know, Grammarly or anything like that, it will warn you and say that this is a, a commonly used phrase, you may want to change it. Well, why is it telling you that? Why would they tell you that? Because what's been understood is this. When you use terms, words, phrases that have been overused through the years, what happens is our ears really get dull to those terms and they start meaning nothing to us. They really do start meaning nothing. You could say them, but because people have heard them uh, used for everything else and so many other times, it starts to mean nothing, basically means nothing. So be very careful when you're writing, when you're telling stories, um, you know, be descriptive. You know, be descriptive, um, but don't use cliche things that people will just gloss over because that's what does happen. People gloss over those things and they don't mean anything to them. And then as you're telling stories, you know, it should be clear the direction you're telling the story in. Give your, give your readers, your listeners, someone to root for, you know, heroes and villains. It's common. Give them someone to root for. And, and that's what I did. Like if you go back and read Blood on the Door, when I wrote that short story to start it, The Night the Children Died, it was called. You know, obviously I'm having you root for the father and the son that are that are Israelites, they're Jews, slaves in, in Egypt, and I'm having you root against the slave uh, master and his son that are uh, basically taskmasters and harassing the people of Israel. I'm giving you from the outset and even the way I'm writing it, if you listen to how I write it, you know, there's like a sense of dread. I describe the whip that uh, he carries, the, the, the slave master carries as he's coming through and you could hear the, the whip because it had uh, pieces on it that were uh, metal and sharp and you could hear it clinking as he's walking through the groups of slaves and people that didn't want to lift up their eyes off of their work to see and don't be don't want to be singled out by him because of the severe beatings that he's given slaves in the past. And you can hear his whip, which he has named, uh, that you can hear it clinking through the crowd as he's walking. People are getting nervous and you feel a sense of dread as he's coming uh, through the group of, of slaves. 
And then his son that flies off the handle at the slaves and freaks out and loses his temper and wants to kill and beat slaves. And then you have the father who loves his son and his son makes a mistake uh, in working. And then the son's getting ready to receive a beating from the slave master and the son is young and the, the father runs out and knocks the slave owner down uh, or the slave master down and tells his son to run. And then his son's lost in the city the night that the death angel's coming through town and he has to find his son and get him back into the house before midnight when the death angel walks through town so that he'll be protected by the blood on the door. So immediately you're giving your readers um, heroes to root for and, and villains to hate. You know, you want to take it in a direction that's that's well known. And uh, it's important and, and not doing it in a way that's that's common or cliche, be descriptive and use and use these skills. I'm telling you, storytelling is the most powerful thing that you could ever master. It's one of the reasons that I've always loved and so many people have always loved Brother Kenneth Hagin. If you've ever listened to him teach before he went home to be with the Lord, he was a phenomenal storyteller. All of his messages filled with stories of things that had happened in the past, some of them funny, some of them sad, but it drove those points of faith home in your heart and in your spirit as he was explaining how those principles worked. You know, to people, I remember early days, you know, he would be preaching to farmers in West Texas, East Texas, you know, and he's ministering to people that may, may not have a whole lot of theological knowledge, didn't spend time studying the word like he did, but through stories, he was able to reach the common man and able to teach biblical faith principles in to the average person who may not know anything about the word, but by the stories he's telling, he can illustrate how the principles work and show their importance to those that are listening to him speak. The same thing is true for you when you're writing, when you're speaking, when you're giving a presentation, selling, whatever you're doing. Using the power of storytelling that Jesus used, anybody that's been successful has used these uh, principles to make what they're doing successful. And I'm believing in you. I, I told you from the first day that there's something in your spirit that God's given you that is worth giving to others. And as a result, you've got to share what God has purposed and anointed you to do with the world. Doesn't matter how you do it, it's important. If it's, if it's important enough to devote your life to, it's important enough to tell somebody about. And so I wanna pray for you at the end of the broadcast and uh, ask God that he would literally give you a burning desire and the wisdom to get this thing out and to touch your generation with what he's spoken to you and what he's given to you because you are anointed. And so I wanna pray for you today. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I thank you for your uh, inspiration. I thank you for the leading of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the power of your word. I'm asking you now for every person that's watching or listening to this, that you would give us a desire to share with others what you've anointed us to do. Give us the wisdom to do it in a way that'll change the lives of men and women before it's too late. I pray that you would use us to be impactful before Jesus comes back to make a change on this generation in this world before it's too late in the wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm, I'm so thankful that you guys are hanging with me today, this week. This is going to be, I'm, I'm excited, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something, I believe, 
uh, with this series. We were talking about it because we get so many questions about it. We may end up making it some sort of a course or something for Miracle Word University or making it available for free. We don't know yet. We're going to do something with it. But so many people have questions. It's so much easier to just literally direct people to a course than answer all the same questions again and again and again. So we may use it in that way. But I appreciate you guys being here with us and live and asking questions. If you have any questions at the end of the broadcast here, put them up. I'll do my best to... Um, to answer anything that you have. We're here in Moorfield, West Virginia. People are being saved. We've had well over 100 people saved. We're getting close to 150 salvations under the tent in Moorfield. Um, we appreciate every one of you that have been praying, sowing. If you'd like to sow a seed or partner with us, you can always go to miracleword.com and sow a seed there. I want to encourage you to do that. Take a step of faith and make a move to touch the world before Jesus comes. You know, when you sow, it is you investing your own life into what God's doing on the earth. And so that's why we encourage people to partner with us. Time is short. Jesus is coming. And if you'd like to do that, the Lord's speaking to you to do it, go to miracleword.com and you can click the give or the partner page and, and sow a seed and stand with us as we're seeing people saved and changed by the power of the Holy Ghost. We've had people drive in from all over the place to be a part of the meeting. And uh, you have, what, three more nights. If you're anywhere close, all the information's online. We'd love to see you and love to have you be a part of this meeting with us. Next month, we'll be in York, Pennsylvania. In August, we'll be in Atlanta, Atlanta Georgia with the tent. And God's moving all over this country, man. People are hungry like never before for a move of the Holy Ghost. So I love you. And uh, I'll be back again tomorrow in the morning, 10.30 a.m. Uh, these last two sessions, I'm going to get extremely practical with how to write these books and the steps you need to take, tools you need to use, and uh, things that need to be done before you ever decide to go to print uh, with the book that God's given you. But I love you guys. Thanks for hanging. Sorry for the glitch. I don't know what happened, but um, I love you and I'll see you in the morning. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.